The following story contains sensitive and disturbing details. It's not suitable for children. The winters of 1976 and 1977 were cold, sad, and brutal for Oakland County, Michigan, and the surrounding area. You've heard the stories that led to the deaths of at least four children, Mark Stebbins, Joe Robinson, Christine Mihalik, and Timmy King. And you've heard about the heartache and the story of communities banding together in one of the largest manhunts in Michigan history. There was the search for the Blue Gremlin, multiple suspect sketches, and police would tear down a pedophile ring and expose a huge societal issue, which helped save a lot of kids from being sexually assaulted. Stranger danger became a common and feared term. For decades, the victims' families have carried their grief alongside confusion about what happened. All right, so in 2007... Um... And for the most part, for a long time, they remained quiet. Gosh, I think it was my cousin wanted to go see John Edward the Psychic. Christine Mihalik's sister, Erica McAvoy, changed everything. Her curiosity led to a John Edward show 12 years ago. Edward is a psychic medium who has written books and hosted TV shows. Welcome to Crossing Over. My name's John Edward. What I'd like to do is just kind of go over some of my symbols so that when we start connecting you and your family or friends that are coming through, it'll better help you understand what I'm talking about. He claims to be able to connect people to their deceased relatives. And we went to see him at Cobo Hall. We thought, well, if we get a hit, then it is what it is. And he says at some point or another, who has a pet monkey? And my cousin raised her hand and said, my aunt had a pet monkey. And he said, it's just so odd. And then he said, you know what? I got to have the four of you get up and move off to the side because there is so much going on amongst the four of you and the reading that I'm getting. I need to separate you from the crowd. And we stepped off to the side, and this is hundreds and hundreds of people in this room. And at that point, I didn't want to tell him because I didn't want to give him anything. And I think when it came to me, I just simply said, um, there had been a death and we were just curious if you could figure out and would there be any sort of communication that you would have. And he actually didn't have much to say other than, he saw ropes and he saw burns, and he said, by being here, you are gonna open Pandora's box. We thought, oh, that's really interesting. And again, I never elaborated that it was an infamous case and that people knew all about this, especially in the Metro Detroit area. If I would have said I was Christine's sister, everyone there then would have put the pieces together, right? One day later, out of the blue, Christine's mother was contacted by police. She said, you know, Detective Gray has called a couple of different times with MSP. Would you be willing to go down to the post and take a look at whatever evidence he has that he's willing to share? And I said, well, of course I will. So keep in mind, my mom never talked about the case, had buried her head in the sand for 30 years at that point, called me and said, let's go make this visit. It's crazy. It is crazy. So, it, you know, the universe is talking on some level is kind of how I look at it. Erica was talking with police. She started to go deeper into things and wanted to reach out to Barry King for the first time ever. I don't know why, but I'm going to. 
And I called him and I said, this is Erica and I'm Christine's sister and you have no idea who I am. And he said, oh no, I know who you are. And then I think maybe then the following week I met with the Kings for the first time. Welcome back to Shattered. Christine Mihalik's sister, Erica McAvoy, says the John Edwards show changed everything. It opened her mind, which prompted her to reach out to the King family. And from there, a bond was formed, and the investigation became something the families could work on together. Well, my dad was assigned this task force when uh, Wayne County got involved. This is Dave Robertson, former Michigan State Police Detective Sergeant. He's talking about his dad, who was the former task force commander back in the 70s, Robert Robertson. My brother and I, my twin brother and I, we, we got, he would set us down at the dining room table and sit there and say, here, look at these tips and just see if you see anything in there that I need to look at. And we went, okay. We went through them and we didn't see shit. <laughs> but, um, but my dad was, he would be gone in the morning when I got up to go to school and he wouldn't be home until 11 o'clock at night. Dave Robertson's dad, Robert, and the rest of the task force accumulated about 20,000 tips between the spring of 1977 in the winter of 1978. They had many suspect sketches drawn up. They had vehicle descriptions. They had theories. Police speculated that the killer either was or maybe was portraying himself to be a trusted figure, like a doctor, priest, cop, or firefighter. They would exhaust all their leads. Is the big break in these boxes the clues to solve the case in these filing cabinets? You are looking at... In February of 2005, the newest version of the task force would come together. Detective Gary Gray and Dave Robertson would lead the charge, along with detectives from nine other law enforcement agencies. Sources tell Rescue 4 detectives are excited over what they describe as promising new tips in the nearly 30-year-old murders. In less than 18 hours, nearly a dozen investigators will convene to tackle these new leads. Those are very, very grim days in this county. Four beautiful young kids who were, who were murdered over a two-year period. It's the biggest break since 1999. That's when I traveled with investigators to Recluse, Wyoming, where the body of a primary suspect, David Norberg, was exhumed. DNA evidence did not link Norberg to the killing. Like reporter Kevin Dietz said, the DNA didn't match. But the investigation was about to go into hyperspeed compared to the last three decades. In August of 2005, Michigan State Police sent DNA from four suspects to the FBI in Quantico, Virginia. The DNA was cross-referenced with the DNA taken from a hair found on Timmy King's body. But none of the DNA matched, and all four men were cleared. DNA technology was advancing, but that wasn't the only development. So the cast quarter was... Um a 10 square mile area in Detroit. And um, it was highly populated by European immigrants who had come north to get jobs in the auto factories. And Author of the book, 
the snow killings, Marnie Keenan. She remembers what the Cass Corridor was like in the 1970s. The place really became a predator's mecca. The Cass Corridor was infamous in Detroit and the surrounding area for all of the wrong reasons. The pornographers were basically a crime ring, organized into generals, lieutenants, and so on. Children's mothers were being paid for their kids' time. Marnie says the suburban kids were preferred. And they ventured to the suburbs because they felt the suburban kids were considered delicacies. Investigators knew what was going on, and they started paying attention to the names and faces. One that emerged was Richard Lawson. Police are not revealing the name of the mystery man from Ohio, but do say Lawson has led them to Detroit's Cass Corridor. Mr. Lawson has given us information in the past, which took uh, my partners and I down to the Cass Corridor. We've done extensive investigations down there. Sources tell me Lawson claims the killer may have abducted Mark Stebbins, Kristen Mihalik, Jill Robinson, and Timothy King and hid them in Detroit's Cass Corridor while investigators searched the suburbs. The kids were kept alive for several days before being killed and placed along roads in the suburbs. And listen to this. Lawson claims there may be other victims, Detroit children who were never linked to the case. Why would police believe Lawson a convicted killer? Former Detroit Police Chief Ike McKinnon says Lawson was a paid informant who helped police catch several pedophiles in the mid-70s. So he, was, he was a wealth of knowledge. I mean, he, he had so much knowledge of that, that underworld uh, that certainly we in law enforcement didn't know about at that time. Lawson's information was good then. That's why investigators are so encouraged now. Lawson was part of the pedophile scene all the way back in the 1970s. He acted as an informant for police and would stay out of trouble, but police, specifically Detective Corey Williams, would get back on his trail several years later. I was investigating a cold homicide out of Livonia. I was a detective there at the time in 2004, and I was investigating a case involving the owner of the Detroit cab company that was shot and killed in his driveway back in, in Livonia in 1989. Detective Corey Williams found out Lawson was likely responsible for the murder of the cab company owner and also many robberies on the East Coast. And Detective Williams noticed something else. So I pulled those police reports and in the reports, Lawson was trying to get the attention of the detectives in Pennsylvania, trying to let them know that he had information to help himself out, obviously, um, about the Michigan snow killings. and. I'm sure that meant nothing to the detectives out there, but it jumped off the page at me. Detective Williams worked with prosecutors to build a case against Lawson. And, and what connections did you find? Um, during the course of, we arrested Lawson in San Diego in January of, of 2005, and I started interviewing him after I had an admission from him, I started talking to him about his involvement and why, what he meant about the Michigan snow killings. And uh, so Lawson started telling me about these things and about his theories and who was involved in the child killing. Richard Lawson had a lot to say. He talked about a guy named Bob Moore. Moore was one of the many well-known pedophiles in the area at the time. And another that Lawson mentioned was a guy named Ted Orr, whose real name is Theodore Lamborghini but everybody calls him Ted. 
Lawson was in police custody, feeding Corey Williams information. It's prior to trial uh, on the murder case, and he's talking about, um, not about his murder, but about the Oakland County child killing. Um, he said that he was, Lawson, was at Bob Moore's apartment one time with Ted Orr and Bob Moore, and Bob Moore had a photo album on his table, coffee table, with pictures of kids in it. And Lawson claimed that um, Ted Orr picked up the photo album, opened to a certain page, and showed it to Bob Moore and said, does that not look like the King Boy? Almost like uh, sarcastically, sort of. I said, okay. So I said, you know, I'm listening to him. And uh, over several conversations, I said, are you sure? I couldn't find a Ted Orr anywhere in Detroit. I said, are you sure his name's Ted Orr? And Lawson finally told me, I think his last real last name starts with L-A-M, Ted Lamb something. So I went over to the state police post and pulled their Oakland County child killing tip files and looked up anybody with a last name starting with L-A-M, and I found a Theodore Lamborghini. And I pulled that tip, and sure enough, it had been called in by Richard Lawson involving Lamborghini and more. So... I was working with Gary Gray at the state police at the time. We said, let's find Lamborghini. We need to talk to him. Lawson put Lamborghini on the radar for police. Then police would put Lamborghini in handcuffs. From the power of four, Local 4 News at 5 starts right now. Ted Lamborghini is a suspect in the Oakland County child killing case. Is this the break that we've been waiting for? For 30 years, the murders of four innocent children have haunted Metro Detroit families and frustrated the police. But tonight, new hope that new charges involving an old suspect could finally crack this case. Good evening. The prosecutors call him, quote, our most promising suspect at this time. Senior citizen. While the police and prosecutors were putting together a case against Lamborghini, Lawson would go to trial for the murder of the cab company owner. Wayne County Prosecutor Kim Worthy and Corey Williams would offer Lawson a deal. Lawson had the option to go to any prison in the U.S. that he wanted to, in exchange for information about the Oakland County child killer. He refused the deal. During his trial, Lawson made sure everyone knew that he was holding on to coveted information. As police escorted Lawson out of the courthouse, we asked him the critical question. Do you know who the Oakland County child killer is? Yes, I believe I do. Who, who is it? No. Mr. Lam Sorry. Is it Mr. Lamborghini? I tell you what, if, if you gentlemen want to meet with me privately, and uh, what I'd like to do is cut a what's little deal. What's wrong with now? They're concealing from you the truth about what's going on in this. Mr. Lawson, if you know who the killer is, why don't you tell these families who it is so they can have some closure, sir? I'll be glad to. Why don't you do it now? At one point, Lawson and Lamborghini were in a courtroom together. Lawson defended himself to the judge, but to no avail. This is uh, uh, as a result of the work that I did for the government. This whole thing here is a sham. Shortly after that, Lawson would turn away from the podium and walk past Ted Lamborghini, who was seated in the courtroom. Lawson and Lamborghini made eye contact. And that's it. Lawson just kept going. But when I first saw the video, I wondered to myself, what the two men were saying to each other silently. Lawson is deceased. He died in prison after we convicted him of murder. Mr. Lamborghini is a suspect 
in the Oakland County child killer case. Um, Mr. Lamborghini is our most promising uh, suspect at this particular time. Ted Lamborghini was 65 years old when he was arrested in 2006 for sexual assault with minors. He looked like a normal older man, balding, glasses. He worked consistently at Ford. I mean, author Marnie Keenan. And just led a really small life, had a really small house on a tiny postage stamp lawn, and kept the house immaculate. Ate out every day at the exact same restaurant. Went to church, forged a really strong relationship with his pastor, so strong that, that Detective Williams called his pastor once and asked his pastor to preach a sermon on redemption and forgiveness and to try and get Ted to unburden his soul. So in September 2005, we met Ted at the state police post and the lieutenant there, um, polygraph Lamborghini, and he was the first failure ever in the Oakland County child killing case. And the polygrapher at that time came out, I remember, the, I remember it, said his failure was very conclusive. It was this polygraph test that had authorities and victims' families thinking they might actually have the guy. In, in my opinion, he definitely has some major involvement in it. The polygrapher who interviewed Ted Lamborghini, next. Well, the jail is, but my last residence before jail was that, Your Honor. It's just Bob Dykstra, it's D-Y-K-S-T-R-A, and uh, I'm a former lieutenant and uh, supervisor for the polygraph section, Michigan State Police. In, in interviewing him, he was deceptive. He was deceptive in a lot of areas. And uh, initially, he did not even being, uh, admit being a pedophile uh, at all. And it took hours to come to that point where he admitted that, yeah, I'm a pedophile. Dykstra said Lamborghini told him he kept some souvenirs from sexual partners, which put detectives into motion. They would get search warrants and begin digging through Lamborghini's stuff. And they told me it, it, it resembled a dental office. They said it was spotless, clean, so that kind of fit with the profile of what, who they suspected as being uh, one of the killers in this case as well, because the bodies were immaculately cleaned. Um, so that was, that was a pretty good indicator that, hey, you know, this guy, there's not too many people that have those tendencies to be that clean, and Ted was one of those guys. So... But did he have the, the mental wherewithal to pull something off of this? Well, if, if I have to give my opinion as to where his involvement in this thing lay, I think um, my opinion is that he was a pedophile and he was, uh, he was victimizing at that time. And the, the other members of the group might have said to him, hey, if you give us up or you tell about this, we'll tell about your, your habits and what your involvement is and what you're doing. And therefore, it was kind of held over his head. 
So I think he had to, at the time had to remain quiet about it because he was he was doing some criminal activity at the time and I think they were holding that over his head. I don't necessarily know if he was the actual killer or uh, but I but I believe he knows and I believe he may have even been present when some of the homicides took place but he didn't didn't talk about it at the time because he couldn't. Bob Dykstra is convinced Ted Lamborghini is involved or at the very least knows who was involved. And to figure out who that was, the Wayne County Prosecutor's Office offered Ted Lamborghini a deal. Uh, Prosecutor Worthy agreed to make him an offer to cooperate in the Oakland County child killing case. And she was willing to go as low as 10 years if he cooperated with us fully and took a polygraph and passed it to solve this case, this old case. Ted not only didn't cooperate and not only turned down this offer, but he did something very unusual. He pled guilty straight up to all 17 counts, including three life felonies without saying a word. Um, which to all of us, we felt it was sort of telling. The thought was that Lamborghini was protecting something or someone why would somebody rather spend the rest of their life in prison instead of giving up information and just taking 10 years? It doesn't make sense. But that was it for Lamborghini. He's currently in the Kinross Correctional Facility in Michigan's Upper Peninsula. He's 78 years old. Retired officer Bob Dykstra and I looked into speaking with Lamborghini, but we were told he has no interest in telling his story. There were other suspects, and for Timmy King's father, Barry King, none seemed to keep his interest like a man named Christopher Bush. That was for good reason. Investigators Corey Williams and Gary Gray were keeping King in the loop. I've trusted the judgment of Williams and Gray to conclude that Bush was more involved than Lamborghini was. What if they're wrong? What if? Well, it just feels like you have all your, your eggs in, in that basket, and there. I do. I've and I've acknowledged that to anybody who's ever talked to me. Uh, and I've not seen anybody convince me that Bush was not involved. I've had a number of people say, well, I'm not going to talk to you anymore, or I'm not going to talk to you. But that doesn't mean they don't agree with me. On December 15, 2010, Barry King filed a Freedom of Information Act request, and it was answered by Michigan State Police. You have to remember that I never got one document of any nature from any government official until December 15, 2010, when the state police responded to my Freedom of Information Act lawsuit. And I got 3,411 pages at a cost of about $11,500. Bush was a pedophile from a wealthy family in Bloomfield Township. His family home was just a couple miles away from what many call the Woodward Corridor which is a stretch of road in Oakland County where the abductions of Mark Stebbins, 
Jill Robinson, Christine Mihalik, and Timmy King took place. Bush had friends in the pedophile community, and one of his closest companions was a guy by the name of Gregory Green. He was from Flint. Bush and Green were together a lot, but there was a time when Green lived in California. And that's important to note because while Green was on the West Coast, he sexually assaulted an underage boy who was in such bad shape when Green was done with him that Green thought the boy was actually dead, and Green left him at the hospital. They would eventually arrest Gregory Green, and he would serve time in a mental health facility. But after that, he would be released, and then he would return home to Flint, Michigan. He and Bush would roam the streets together. Bush would be charged with four different sexual misconduct charges involving children in four different jurisdictions. One of these charges was for an incident that happened in Flint, and Gregory Green was charged for the same crime. Somehow, though, Bush wouldn't serve any time and get probation, but Green would be sentenced to life in prison. When Timmy was kidnapped, Christopher Bush was a pedophile defendant in four counties, Montmorency, Midland, Tennessee, and Oakland. I found out when I got access to the Flint files, or maybe later, that he pled guilty and received probation in all four lawsuits. I, I cannot imagine today anybody uh, doing that crime in four counties, not spending a little time behind the bars. Uh, his dad is a prominent executive at General Motors. He and Gregory Green do the same boy up in Flint. Christopher Bush gets probation. Gregory Green gets life in prison. Which one has the money? That's, all, that's always a bit scary to me that bribery might uh, be in, involved. And of course, if bribery is involved, that would be a good reason not to talk to me. Barry King had started a battle accidentally. He wanted all of the police and court files related to the Oakland County child killer case, but he was starting to get pushback. Once he got on the trail of Christopher Bush, he learned more about him, his life, and his death. And King became suspicious that money may have influenced the investigation. But who would be protecting the rich? Well, Barry King and I are friends. Former Oakland County prosecutor, current Oakland County executive, Al Brooks Patterson. I tried to help him get the file. The prosecutor was just being absolutely... Uh, Jessica? Yeah. yeah, just being unreasonable to a point of, you know, uh, all he wants to do, he's a father, lost his son, he wants to, he's in his 70s, he's not in good health, and he wants to see the file. Mm -hmm. And she's, well, it's an ongoing investigation. I don't care if it is the ongoing investigation. If I have a prosecutor still, that file will be sitting on my desk. Patterson paints a picture of a nice, cordial relationship, but Barry King might see things differently. The interesting thing about Brooks is when I first met him, he said if he was still prosecutor, he'd appoint me an assistant prosecutor and let me look at all the files. And he never told me that he had 
found that Brooks, that, that Christopher Bush was innocent. <laughs> and I'm pretty certain that if I'd gotten up to the Oakland County files, that portion of the examination would not have been there. The chief assistant prosecutor in Oakland County back in 1977 was Richard Thompson. He was a no-nonsense, no-deals kind of guy. This is current chief assistant prosecutor in Oakland County, Paul Walton. Christopher Bush uh, was a file that uh, Richard Thompson had authorized for criminal sexual assault against a, uh, another child by the name of uh, Kenneth Bowman. It was a sexual assault that happened in Groveland Township. Um, wrote a number of very serious charges against him, which could have, if convicted, landed him in life in prison. Um, the then assistant, chief assistant prosecutor, a gentleman by the name of uh, Richard Thompson, reviewed the file, um, wrote no deals on it. The then Brooks Patterson, the Oakland County prosecutor, received a letter from the Genesee County prosecutor at the time indicating that he knows that there is a sex ring going on involving minors. He would like to meet with the area prosecutors to discuss open cases. Christopher Bush was an open case at that time. Between the time of the office writing the criminal sexual assault charges, the preliminary examination where it was bound over, a deal is struck, he is released, and Timothy King disappears. Now armed with new information, King says he believes he's cracked this case wide open himself. The Birmingham attorney now revealing he believes the guy in this mugshot, Christopher Bush, a known pedophile who was convicted several times of sexually assaulting children in 1977, is the Oakland County child killer. Bush lived in Birmingham. He was the son of a wealthy GM exec. He never served time for assaulting victims in the Flint area, and he was living in Oakland County when Timmy vanished. They interviewed one of Bush's nephews. He said, yeah, I remember my uncle Chris taking me up and showing me where Timmy King, or the last boy, he didn't know Tim's name maybe, was abducted. Circumstantial evidence was overwhelmingly stacking up against Bush. Officer Tom Waldron of the Flint Police Department filed a report outlining a conversation Bush had with a Southfield police officer, Lauren Doan. Bush sat in the back of a cop car while being questioned, and he waived his constitutional rights. According to the report, Bush admitted to having sexual relations with one child and then went on to admit several other sexual situations with many other boys. November 20th, 1978, Christopher Bush is found dead in his home. We were told that the Bush suicide report had been destroyed. But a member of the media would get King the files from Christopher Bush's suicide. What was found in those documents would change everything. Christine Mihalik's sister, Erica McAvoy, says Gary Gray of the task force told her and her mother a lot. Gary Gray showed us everything that he had in his evidence room that we could visibly see. 
So at that point then was when he revealed to me the photos of the suicide scene. So we flipped through those, took all of that in, and it all just seemed very suspicious to me that he had committed suicide in his bed in the fashion that he did. And I asked Gary about it. How does one kill themselves when they are wrapped up like a mummy in their bed? And he said, oh, it is suspicious because he shot himself right between the eyes. So are you, are you just calling BS right away in your mind? Oh, absolutely, yes. Christopher Bush was found inside his Birmingham residence, wrapped in blankets on his bed. In the police photos, you see the 22 caliber rifle laying next to him in his lifeless body. It almost looks like it was carefully placed there. There were other noticeable things. On the wall of his bedroom was his pencil drawing. It's a young boy screaming. He has the same hairdo as Mark Stebbins, and he's wearing the same outfit Mark Stebbins was wearing when he was kidnapped. This yeah, picture that's is... the picture I was telling you about. Yeah. Mark Stebbins' brother, Mike. Yeah. When I first saw that, I'm like, yeah, that looks exactly like my brother being sodomized. And while it may not be scientific evidence, I think the odds of that picture being up there without some knowledge of the boy is so remote as to be not discussable. Um, also, the police report indicates that although he committed suicide, there was no gunpowder on his fingers. Ropes that appeared to have blood stains were also found in the Bush home. And they found uh, ropes in the closet that might have been used to tie up young boys or girls, although that uh, it's all conjecture on the rope part. Those ropes would eventually go missing, but investigators like Dave Robertson weren't buying that they were involved in the abductions or murders. I, I remember the picture of the ropes in the closet, but, uh, and, <clears throat> and the thing is, is that they've already proven that there wasn't blood on those. Bush owned a small white dog, and white animal hairs were found on at least three of the children. Authorities would decipher that those hairs were from different animals and that the kids and Bush's dog, well, they were never connected. We don't know what was missing when nobody had any access to any files for three decades. The drawing of the screaming boy was one thing that many people simply couldn't get past. I think if I walked into any house and saw this picture on it, I wouldn't think it was up there for artistic purposes. Bush wasn't the only person whose name came to light around this time. In 2012, two more names were front and center in the investigation. Take a look at Arch Sloan, a 70-year-old convicted pedophile serving life in prison. Police say a hair found in his 1966 Bonneville is a DNA match. I thought it was a good lead and I thought it should have been followed up on, and, but uh, not by me. <laughs> Police say a hair found in his 1966 Bonneville is a DNA match to hairs found on the victims of Mark Stebbins and Timothy King. And this was really monumental. You have the first victim, you have the last victim, and you have a 
pedophile's car who was interrogated at the time. The only problem is the hair does not, that was found in the car does not belong to Arch Sloan. First of all, his full name is James Vincent Gunnels. He's 49 years old. He's also a career criminal. And the theory was that Christopher Bush knew Mr. Gunnels. Mr. Gunnels was being used as a lure to bring Timothy King into the car, and that's how he was abducted. So let's make it clear. This hair that Mr. King is talked about, Christopher Bush is excluded. He is not a contributor. Mr. Gunnels could be, but the statistical odds are about 1 in 150, which when you expand that out to all the population of Michigan at the time is hundreds of thousands of people. So it has limited forensic importance. It has importance. I don't want to minimize that, but I don't want your listeners to walk away with the idea that the DNA here links Gunnels to the murder of Timothy King. It does not. Police crossed Sloan and Gunnels off the list. And according to former task force member Dave Robertson, he says all the names. And the reinvented task force actually had 19 names on a whiteboard. He said all those names can be eliminated. Oh, yeah, I could rule out. Everybody on the, we got DNA on, because none of their DNA matches. Can you list them all for me? You can rule out. You can rule out. Smith, Norbert, Warzeka, Lawson, McRae, Lambergine, Moore, Grant, Linky, Hastings. Uh, was it Bowman? Gregory Green, Christopher Bush, Ted Miller, Vince Gunnels, Tazilar, James Moore, Art Sloan, and Crosby. I can, I, you eliminate all of them. None of their DNA matches, and we investigated all of them fully. And I, I, I truly believe that there's, you've got separate killers for the girls and the boys. Do you think that, in this theory, do you think that they're working together? No. Completely separate? Completely separate. I know the families know some of it, the victims' families, but would be so surprised at how much work has been done and how we've advanced this case as a team. Detective Corey Williams. And when I say advance the case, I mean um, follow leads, exhaust the leads. Some of our investigations, individual investigations over the last eight, 10 years, took a year, two years. One of them took three years. And we, to, when I say exhaust them, that doesn't mean we eliminate. The people are eliminated. And let me just make clear right now that when we eliminate people based on DNA, that does not, in our minds as investigators, say that that person's eliminated as a suspect. In no way is that the case. We still keep them in mind. That doesn't mean they couldn't be involved. They just didn't happen to be the donor of that hair 
they were excluded as the donor, but it doesn't mean they're not involved. Science continues to advance, and some think that will be what solves this case. As far as genealogy goes, that seems to be the hot topic right now. As far as that goes, I spoke to the supervisor of the DNA unit at Quantico about our case, and we talked at length about it. And the problem with this, with the genealogy is it takes a, a specific type of DNA to get the genealogy results that, that we would need for our case. Um, there's many different kinds of DNA. And so it's not to say that we can't or that we're not looking into it. We are, we're continuing to look into it. But um, it's only certain types where you can get the positive results that you need like they did in the Golden State killings. But we're looking at it. Others think it will take transparency. If Jessica Cooper and the prosecutor's office are not gonna talk to me, I'll never know I have to assume that what I've been told is true. I understand that he's responded, and I understand that he's angry. It's, I'm a grown-up. I can't get angry back. I, I understand that, that he, again, is having some problems. Current Oakland County Prosecutor Jessica Cooper. And I understand that he is in tremendous pain, and he would love it closed. I would love it closed. The balance between too much information and just enough continues. The Stebbins, Robinson, Mihalik, and King families continue the fight for information. Their united push fuels investigators. But their demands for answers and information might also frustrate officials. Barry King leads the charge, and nobody knows better than him that over the course of four decades, a lot has changed. But there's a lot that hasn't changed. Mr. King thinks that there is still information that he has not been given, that the public has not been given, that we should have been given about the child killer investigation. This case can be solved, and it's going to be solved, I believe, through someone talking or through technology, forensic technology. Do you think before you're done on this earth, you know the answer. My family's not very confident about it, but I would, I, th I feel even worse not knowing the answer is the fact that the people who looked into it after 40 years won't talk about it. Brooks Patterson will talk to you if you tell him what the questions are. Barry King's never asked that. I'd like to talk to Brooks Patterson, Thompson, and Cooper under oath with their right hands raised. And if they're correct, uh, I'll acknowledge that I may have made some mistakes. And if it turns out they're incorrect, uh, I would assume that the public might be quite upset. Thanks for listening to this season of Shattered. For more on this case, 
headtoshatteredpodcast.com. We want to make sure we thank Barry King, Erica McAvoy, the Robinson family, Mike Stebbins, Michael Moyes, Marnie Keenan, Corey Williams, Paul Walton, Jessica Cooper, Kim Worthy, Dick Hafner, Bob Dykstra, Dave Robertson, Al Brooks Patterson, Kathleen Firestone, Joan Kalchik-Tenbrock, Bill Johnson, and Michael Dunsmore. And as always, a special thanks to Anastasia Klimovitz, Joe Prince, and Tad Davis for their help in interviews and along the way. Zach Rosen, who oversees our podcast production. Dave Birch, who made it possible to record the audio and video. The Walter P. Ruther Library at Wayne State University and their staff. Ro Coppola, executive producer of Special Projects at WDIV. Kevin Dietz, who has been covering this case for a long time. And Fresh Air Aviation. And remember to stay subscribed, because if there are updates in this case or any of the other seasons, they're going to pop up right here in this feed. Until next time.